Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers, students, and coaches who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have the Clinical Athlete Forum, where we discuss and share ideas and resources related to athlete health and performance. So to join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete Directory, and for all upcoming seminars, webinars, and events, details can be found on clinicalathletes.com. We still have several weightlifting certifications coming up and a powerlifting certifi- certification coming up in Orange County, California in October. This podcast can also be found on our website, along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. And if the platform that you use allows you to rate the show, we'd appreciate you taking the time to do that so we can get this information out to as many people as possible. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Continuing Education Director and Coordinator and a physiotherapist at Depth Physiotherapy in Waterloo, Ontario, Canada. He is also a strength coach and runs an online powerlifting coaching company and is a competitive powerlifter himself. What's up, Jared? Not much, man. It's been a good day. Happy to be here and talk about some good stuff with you guys. Hey. Hey. <laughs> hey. Hey. Fluent we also, Canadian. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, guys. Hey, sorry. Hey. <laughs> Perfect. Now I'm fluent. <laughs> We also have John Flagg, who is an athletic trainer and a powerlifting, weightlifting, and strongman coach at 301 Strong in White Plains, Maryland, and the owner of Rebuild Stronger, an online coaching platform for strength athletes. He is also a clinical athlete provider and lead instructor of the Clinical Athlete Powerlifting Certification. What's up, John? Nothing much. Really excited to get into the weeds here a little bit about strength sport. Is that what we're talking about? I think that's what we're going to talk about. I had no idea. I just thought we were going to shoot the shit. The barbells. <laughs> well, and to make a quick plug before I forget, we also just launched the online clinical athlete coaching sector of what we do in the clinical athlete community. I think we made an announcement about this for powerlifting a while back. So that's still in the mix. Uh, but if you're an athlete and you're interested, in getting coached by one of us three uh, in various sports. And if you're looking for various physical activity qualities or athletic qualities, go to clinicalathlete.com and you can check out the online coaching tab. Uh, And we will be happy to work with you and help you to your performance goals. So barbell sports, that's what we're going to be talking about. So we're going to be talking how we coach barbell athletes, how we how we manage uh, injuries, maybe talk about other healthcare providers and, and what they should know and working with barbell sport athletes. So there's a lot that we could cover here. Let's go through first talking about our backgrounds, either working with these types of athletes or our own barbell experience competing in, in various sports. So, John, how'd you get uh, hooked up with the steel? Uh, College, like I think most people do. Um, Competed in wrestling and and football and track in in high school and did a little bit of lifting then, but really college is where I kind of got bit by it. Um, Especially in undergrad, it became a really kind of pivotal part of my day. 
to kind of de-stress and, and have something to myself um, with long schedules that AT undergrad stuff typically brings. Uh, and then I got really serious into it in grad school. Um, that's when I really started kind of getting into powerlifting. I powerlifted for five or six years at that point, um, doing pretty much what everybody else does, five, three, one, um, some starting strength stuff. But I, I really did hook hook pretty hard on the five, three, one. That was one that really took me a ways. And then there was a winter vacation where my brother, who was at Virginia Tech, who's seven years younger than me at this time, had just picked up weightlifting. And he's like six foot one and 170 pounds soaking wet. So he's like the exact opposite of me. <laughs> um, and he took a barbell, put it over his head and went into an overhead squat. And I was just in awe. I was like, teach me. <laughs> show me, show me how to do this. Um, that's when I got into weightlifting and I watched hours upon hours upon hours of, uh, YouTube and got Greg Everett's book and just really, really dove into it headfirst. Um, we started a small club, just a bunch of people who were interested in it, um, started taking over the coaching there and then did that for another five years. Then I had my first kit and the training sessions needed to be simplified. And i got bit with powerlifting again. Um, and I, I've never looked back, uh, been competing, coaching for close to 10 years at this point. Um, going to the Arnold in coached athletes to nationals, USAPL nationals, um, hundred percent raw world championships and, and taking two trophies home there. Um, it, it's been a blast and it's something that I absolutely love doing. Um, picked up strongman recently, probably about the last two years. Um, again, just helping a friend out and found so many similarities between the base that, that powerlifting brings and the odd objects that, that strongman kind of makes you go through and the conditioning involved there. And, uh, and that, that's really where all of this kind of started and developed. And then the course is just teaching the courses has really challenged me in regards to thinking outside the box. But, uh, my next foray is, is equipped powerlifting and, the difficulties that that brings, even though I am absolutely loving it right now. Uh, I had a meet in January that got canceled because of snow. And then I had a meet September 1st that I was going to do. And I had 14 athletes sign up for it, which I now have a rule that you're not allowed to sign up for competitions that I'm going to do mm-hmm. because I'm <laughs> not, I'm just not, I pulled out. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Do you get first dibs now? Yeah. I, I basically nice. get, I, I'm going to pick. Yeah. Um, but I'm not going to, put myself or my athletes through that. If, especially in a, in a squat suit, that's a lot of weight. You got to worry about being on your back. Um, so I, I think I've got one, I think I'm going to do one in January, um, to get that monkey off my back and, and hoping to go like mid eights, five, something and seven, my first equipped meet. So it's your first forward to it. All USAPL stuff. You've never competed equipped. Uh, classic raw in USPA and wraps before. Okay. Um, but, mm-hmm. but I've trained equipped for about two years now. I've just never been able to get into a meet because a USAPL in this area doesn't have a whole lot of equipped slots. Hmm. Um, you see that a little bit more in the Midwest, uh, down South in Texas and other federations and USAPL and hundred percent raw in this area are the biggest two. And they don't normally open it up for equipped lifting. So it's normally just raw. Do you train by yourself a lot these days or at the gym with other people? At the gym with other people, it still makes putting a bench shirt on really, really hard. <laughs> yeah, I bet. It's not something that's easy. Uh, 
But I, I train primarily 50% of my training is probably in my large group at 301. We have a mm-hmm. great crew there now. Um, a lot of energy, a lot of, a lot of PRs pretty much every week. And nice. then the other 50% is probably at home on my squat rack and power bar with the kids. It's awesome. That's the dream. It is for me. It's great. At at 301, are are people doing strongman, powerlifting, weightlifting all at the same time? All at the same time, man. It's a, are there any, any, uh, like gang fights or anything like that? (laughs) No, we, we've actually (laughs) outside of like strongman stuff being everywhere. Cause that sport just takes up so much real estate and Seriously, the the guy who runs or or kind of had fostered the strongman program there, he is a collector. So we have natural stones, we have atlas stones, we have kegs, we have a car deadlift, we have logs, we have everything you could think of. We have an elephant bar. We've got all the gadgets. Damn. Um, yeah, because he's just collected it. So it sits in the back of the gym <laughs> and just, you know, kind of – I know Josh probably doesn't really like to see half of that stuff around but uh it takes a lot of real estate but nah they they get along really well um we've fostered a really good environment there that's been really inviting to people um the weightlifting group is is a little bit smaller there's only about four or five of them but we have about 40 powerlifters at this point that uh that really kind of gel together really nicely um so it's a good group it's a lot it's very enjoyable do you manage all those or do you or is it you and josh for us, like that's programming. All, that's all me. Cool. I do all the programming. I do all the athlete management. I do all the meat handling. Um, that's all me. Damn. Damn. Yeah. So you like I mean, that, that stuff, huh? I love it. <laughs> um, it. I think one of the misnomers, at least if if you're fortunate enough, is that powerlifting is is a completely individual sport. Um, I look at it so much like wrestling, which is my main background, that a team and really good training partners can make a real difference. Um, and especially with what we have with online communities now, it doesn't make sense to not have something like that. You know what I mean? At least mm-hmm. at least that social aspect of it, the push, the positivity. Because um, strength sports are so inclusive with so many different things. So many people can do them. But having a really good training environment is is crucial to me, and it's something that I love doing. Like last this past Thursday, I think everybody in the gym hit a PR, nice. and you know a majority of my team is female, probably like ninety five percent. And you know we're cranking music, they're dancing, everybody's cheering, laughing, Are you dancing? having a good time. I try. Okay, does that count? Sure. You know? That's surprising. Yeah, sh- I'd like to see that. Well, it, just oh. a little shake. Oh, oh, that's all I got. People will have to watch you on YouTube. They'll have to watch this say. show on YouTube. Yeah, you're going to have to watch it on YouTube. You gave them a little you know? something there. Yeah. <laughs> Powerlifting's not a rotational sport, so I can't really go this way. <laughs> Let's make this just, another plug for online coaching. This want to be coached way. by John Flagg. <laughs> see more of these. Hit us up. Yeah. Make sure we can go for PRs. It's the Backstreet Boys. 10 kilos. Oh, oh yeah. Performance enhancing. <laughs> USAPO illegal. Yeah. Jared, how'd you get into the iron? I said steel because I was thinking barbell because I'm a weightlifter. So I'm thinking like the bar, 
And then we have bumpers. So usually people right. would say iron, the iron game, but I don't like iron but, plates. So right. it's hard to tell a weightlifter how'd you get into the plastic. They, yeah, <laughs> the rubber. <laughs> the bump. Entirely different. That sounds right. like drug. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For me, same sort of start as John, uh, mostly in university. I'd started lifting weights because I played high school football and played for the last three years. American football? School. American football in Canada. American rules too. Is that eight man? There you go. Uh, no. Uh, no. No. He's counting. Look, you said American out. rules, right? Well, that would be 11. It would be 11 on 11. Maybe. Okay. Yeah, it was 11 on 11. Exactly. That's right. Um, I can't math right now, but sort of lifting weights to try to get a little bit bigger, a little stronger, and then just wanted to, to look better, honestly. So getting to university, started going to the gym more regularly, and then also became an outlet for me to de-stress, a way to push myself and just try to get stronger. And then at some point along the way, I wanted to try to compete in bodybuilding. So finished undergrad. Um, there's a year between the, the end of undergrad and the start of physio school. So it was that time that I started to get more serious about bodybuilding. And that went uh, fine. I never ended up competing. Uh, it exacerbated more of my neurotic tendencies that already existed and reached a point where I realized that just wasn't a thing that I thought I could do slash wanted to do anymore. And then I also wasn't super keen to, I wasn't super keen on the subjective part of bodybuilding. I didn't really find the pe the appeal anymore and getting up on stage and having some judge tell me that my calves weren't as good as the next guys. So then the, the objectivity of powerlifting appealed to me a lot in that instance. Granted, there's still subjectivity, but I think we could argue a lot less. So then in physio school, I started training more for powerlifting, ran five through one for a good long time. And, uh, after school, I moved to a town a little bit northeast of, of Toronto and started working. Met one of my good friends who I ended up starting to coach with later on, but he was squatting. It sounds weird, but he finished a set and I walked past him and I complimented the squat because it looked great. He's a big, strong guy. And so we got talking and he asked me if I competed and I said, no, not yet. And gave the usual spiel, like, ah, I want to at some point when I'm strong enough. And he's like, dude, what's strong enough? Just, just do it. And that was his regret that he didn't do it sooner. So I pulled the trigger. I signed up for two meets within five weeks of each other. I uh, did the first one. I had to pull out the second one because of a hammy thing. But uh, it was awesome. I didn't know really what to expect. I've been told that the powerlifting crew or community was pretty welcoming of new lifters. But it's kind of intimidating walking into a gym at 7 a.m. on a Saturday and seeing a whole bunch of big, not sweaty yet. They got sweaty later, but big. <laughs> bearded, hairy men, not so hairy women, but also very strong women. Um, but everyone was just super helpful. Um, the meet was run really well. And the meet director had a thing where if you were a new lifter, you just took chalk and marked an X on your singlet, just so that if you got a, if you messed up on a technicality, they would just wave it because they wanted you, they wanted oh, us to leave cool. with a really good, I thought so. And, and I did get a technicality, uh, but still got the lift. So after that, just was hooked. So been been training ever since. Haven't competed a whole lot just because there's been an, a unique mix of my own injuries to manage, uh, life events, moving, having kids, um, trying to get established in a new place and build up a caseload, and then also trying to balance 
or make sure that I'm able to be around for the athletes that I'm geographically close to, to coach them at their meets. <clears throat> but I'm prepping for a meet now. I got one October 19th. Um, this will be the first time in over a year and just looking to hopefully improve on all the, the previous meet lifts, but really just trying to get, get in there, learn more about what it is to be an athlete and to perform and to get in the right headspace and to just be able to understand more about how I, how I function in those situations. Um, but I've also had the opportunity to, to work as a coach uh, alongside my own coach and his business partner. And they coach regularly at the provincial and national level. Um, my coach's business partner is one of the assistant coaches for the Canadian national team. So he's regularly at Worlds and things like that. So I was up in, in Ottawa for nationals this past March for most of the week. And that's been really, that was a really formative experience, I think, for me, in addition to all the other meets that I've, that I've been at, just because it forces, if, I think to do it well, you've got to adapt to the lifter or lifters that you're working with. Not only do you have to juggle all of the, the things, all of the inputs and decisions that have to be made on game day as the coach, but it, you could have a lifter who needs to get really hyped up before a lift. <clears throat> maybe they're too hyped. And maybe they're making careless mistakes. So you got to bring them back down a little bit. Maybe you have another lifter that you're handling in the same session who wants to be really calm and just needs to be told when to get up and move over to the uh, to the plat or to get ready to go on the platform. So those have also been really valuable things for me to then carry forward as a coach, even as a clinician, because there's a lot of parallels there, and then as an athlete, because I think I can go into this meet knowing a bit more. Um, a little bit more about how I tend to to function under stress, <clears throat> but it'll just be uh, a useful thing to switch roles instead of being the one with the clipboard. I'm just the one with the bar on my back. Nice, man. October 19th, you said? Yes, sir. Mark it down. Live stream? I don't know. Um, I was trying to find that out. I haven't seen that posted on the event page, but I'll try to figure that out and, and relay that to everybody. Cool. Yeah, that'd be cool. If you want to watch me lift some very average weight. Heavy is relative. Yes. My How about turn? you, Mr. Hennick? Yeah. yeah, Quinn. How'd uh, you get into the rubber? <laughs> <laughs> um, similar to what you guys said. So I played American football in high school as well. And I played in college. And I was lucky enough to do... The snatch and clean and jerk in high school and college was a part of our training for both of those things. And it was always my favorite part of the training. I actually didn't, you know, I came in into high school. I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm already not a very big guy. And I was a little teeny tiny guy. I was like five feet tall, 100 pounds as a freshman in high school. Nice. And I actually didn't like lifting weights because I felt so self-conscious about how small and weak I was. And the power lifts, so bench press especially, I had zero upper body strength and I would avoid benching because I was, of how weak I was. So that's like, it was one of those, you know, you don't get stronger unless you do it. So, but what I did enjoy were the cleans and the jerks and the snatches because I was, I was better at that stuff. It, it, they fit my attributes better. Just kind of the, the speed of the movements and those types of things. And you can kind of get away with being, uh, absolutely weaker a little bit if you've got the technique and the timing and the and the pop for it so and obviously you can get stronger over time so my legs 
did definitely got stronger faster than my upper body just because I enjoyed training that more. But I, so through football, you know, had, had that exposure. And after I graduated from undergrad and my football career was over, I was just looking for other things to compete in. So weightlifting was kind of the, the obvious choice, but I actually didn't start competing in weightlifting. Powerlifting and CrossFit were the two barbell-related sports that I competed in first before I competed in weightlifting. You're a national champion? World champion? In fact, so I am technically a powerlifting national champion in the NASA Federation. N-A-S-A. That was a meet in Missouri, I believe. That's right. Damn. That was 2009, somewhere somewhere in that realm. So it was, yeah, it was like the year after graduation, I started to compete in both both CrossFit and powerlifting. And in CrossFit, I learned real quick. I'm just not wired. I'm not wired for that stuff. I'm a I'm a you know I played corner. I was a sprinter. Uh, I was really good at the shorter metcons, the 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 sprints. But anything over five minutes just crushed my soul. I just wasn't very good at it. But anything that I wanted to do, I wanted to compete in because I still had that itch. And so powerlifting is what I turned to because the barrier to entry was just low as far as, you know, anybody can do a powerlifting meet. Squat, bench, and dead. It's not all complicated. <laughs> uh, but again, I wanted, you know, my, my bias is just, just compete and to be as good as I can in the thing. And that bench press just kept coming back and biting me in the ass. I just, I never really got that good at it. And... Same thing. And it was, yeah, and it, and it um, just it just wasn't as fun as weightlifting because of that. I didn't feel like I, I had as much potential. And so then I switched exclusively to competing and training for weightlifting in 2000, late 2010, and I've been doing that ever since. And I've, I've not competed in anything else but weightlifting. I've done lots of meets. I've done 30, 30 plus meets at this point. I used to do a, a, a ton when I first started in PT school. Like we would do, I would travel for rotations and then for a a two month rotation, I'd probably do a couple meets every time I'd go travel somewhere. So just, it was just a lot of fun. And I'm the type of guy who can scratch and claw his way for about the last five years, scratch and claw my way up to, to national level totals to go and lift in the J session at the American open or, or, um, uh, it what used to be nationals in like 2014 until everybody started to get really good and the and the totals started to rise. <laughs> uh, but it's it's still a lot of fun for me, and I just I just really enjoy doing the movements and um, and the training, and I enjoy the physicality of it. And I think that's why I, it was so attractive to me after football because it kind of scratched that itch a little bit. Uh, but I felt like I had more autonomy in the process as well as that individual sport, which I thought was kind of cool. It's just kind of a different dynamic. And I, like you guys, I, I coach as well. We have, my clinic is inside of, of SoCal weightlifting. And we have, I don't, I don't know the exact number right now, but I know it's like 110, 115 only weightlifting members. So people who are like, I only want to do the snatch and clean jerk. That's why I'm here at this gym. So we have a, a crazy pool of, of, of lifters there at all levels from top to bottom from a youth world team you know national level to down to i've never snatched in my entire life it just looks cool and, and you guys seem like a, a cool gym that i want to try out like it, it's it's really awesome and nice. the, the coaches are great and uh and i have 
some remote lifters that I coach. I have some powerlifters too, actually, that I that I coach, and and more competitive weightlifters though, and um, all levels. And and sometimes I go and count at the meets, and weightlifting meets are crazy. I, I've I've counted at powerlifting meets as well, and uh, the the flights it, it just makes it run a lot smoother. Where in weightlifting, where it's just the load on the bar just gets heavier and heavier until the strongest person goes and people are changing and they're missing lifts and flip-flopping and, and um, changing the weights that they're going to use to mess with you. <laughs> it's it's a real crazy experience, So, but it, it's a lot of fun. And uh, the way that we've done this now is kind of like you guys, you compete, you coach remotely, you coach in person. It's just like all aspects of the sport, you're just kind of embedded in it at this point and it's uh it's definitely i know you know you don't want to define yourself by what you do but weightlifting has been a lo- real large part of my life and it's just kind of it's just kind of the norm at this point you know i don't know what i would do without the sport it would be it would be really really weird to not have it be a part of what i do so that's kind of where i am i agree with that especially about if it wasn't here i wouldn't really know kind of what to do with myself. Cause I am so entrenched in it between the coaching and the competing myself. And, you know, you, you become a resource when it comes to, uh, injury and performance all at once that it, it's always, it's always there. And if it yeah. were gone, I would struggle. My coach asked me a while ago, uh, I think it was during a period of time where I was feeling pretty beat up and motivation was down. He asked me to just reflect on why I train and write down my reasons for training. And one of them was because it grounds me and provides regularity and consistency when it comes to my daily and weekly routines. And I know I said this before, but it's taught me a lot, not only about how I naturally am and my, my typical tendencies, but it's also given me an opportunity to work on qualities that I value that maybe wasn't as good at before, but consistency for one, um, aggressiveness uh, in inappropriate situations for another. <clears throat> and part of that is is also recognizing when things are scary, big heavy weight on the bar, whether it's for a squat or deadlift, bench too, I guess, but my, dead, my bench isn't great. So we'll stick with squat and dead. Uh, that's scary. And especially for me with the added element of having had a couple, two or three hamstring issues on both sides. So then there's the whole dynamic of how do you, how do you build back some of that confidence and manage the situation as you need to, but also recognize that, yeah, there's, there's something scary about this. Something may not go the way I want it to, but I'm still signing off on it. And it's still a pursuit that's worth the risk to me. And I think that the lessons learned in that pursuit transfer over, obviously, to, to coaching other lifters who want to do the same thing, but also to the clinic when people have no interest in being a power lifter or touching a barbell, but they might want to very much get back to playing hockey or some other sport. And I think whether, whether it's discussed explicitly or not, I think and I hope that it helps to give let the person that I'm working with or talking to let them know that I, I get it on some level, you know, even if my experience is very different from theirs and even if their goal looks nothing like 
the goals that I have for myself. I know what it's like to to want something and to be willing to adopt the habits and uh, to do the things that you need to do to get there. And especially when that gets disrupted by something that you may not have control over and uh, you know what that feels like mentally and emotionally and, uh, and how hopefully I'm able to help them navigate that a little bit better. That probably influences you as a clinician as well. I would, I would imagine. Hugely. Yeah. John, have you found that as well? That your training and working with this type of population and maybe what the sport has or these these sports have taught you has influenced the way that you treat or the, the lens that you use as a clinician? Absolutely. It's it's actually directed me um, to probably where I am today uh, for multiple reasons. Obviously, the, the population that it, it brings me around, but also the like-minded clinicians that I, I speak with and, and interact with on a regular basis. Um, there's a couple of things that come with it. A, you know, if you look at, especially power, so if we just look at powerlifting, um, if you look at the injury rate and you look at the prevalence of injury, a lot of it is, you know, joint sensitivities, idiopathic type stuff. We're not seeing a lot of what would be considered catastrophic injury or, or something that is a, leads to a lo- large amount of time loss. Um, and as a competitor, I've, I've, I've gone through that. I've gone through it multiple times um, in, in just a regular course of training. Uh, nothing really out of the ordinary, uh, especially if you want to consider I've been training for 15 years in this almost exclusively between powerlifting and weightlifting. You could say I've got a lot of mileage on me, even though I don't really necessarily agree with that kind of statement. Um, I've done a lot of training and understanding a couple things. A, uh, there are going to be dips in performance that are expected. Um, it's a completely unpredictable process, which it took me a long time to really, really kind of come around to. Um, and I've got a long-winded, interesting story about my the first time I fell flat on my face as a coach for a couple months because I thought I had this whole thing figured out, if you want to hear that. But um, yes. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing, too, is, is learning how to communicate that and learning how to communicate it effectively, um, not just because I've been there, but also because for a lot of athletes, any type of injury is, is, is anxiety bringing, right? It's, it's like, Oh my God, we, we talk about, uh, squat panic and, and lost time and, you know, post injury max out sessions and stuff a lot in, in, in our courses. Um, but it's true. Like people miss time. And if you look at the average rates of injury, most of the time it's anywhere between two to six weeks of modified training time, not even really lost training time, just modified training time. And people think they've lost this large chunk of development where really, especially if you're smart about it, you can continue to get a training effect. You can continue to move forward and not rush the process. And it it took me a long time to figure that out just for myself uh, and and developing my own kind of training skill to get better at that and then better communicate that as well. Uh, and, And that's, it's an important part of the athlete management model, but also injury management model is to get them to understand, hey, look, this is temporary. It's something that you can work through. We're going to modify training. We're going to stick to this and that. We're going to get a training effect and keep moving you forward. Um, We don't want to hit the brakes and do nothing, but we're also not going to say, and 
this is how I ended up with a longer term injury than I probably would have liked. It's just go in, fight on your mouth guard and pull heavy again. You know what I mean? Like just be smart and you can, you can make this a, what I believe to be lifelong sport. Yeah, it's definitely influenced me as well. I think if some, in some respects, it simplifies the process for me because the training of barbell sports is very closely related to the actual game, so to speak, or the, the competition. Yeah. yeah. Where training as a football player or you know other types of sports similar to that, you obviously practice the sport, but you do a lot of other stuff too. And, the, and then the weight room is even part of that. As part of your training, so it's the the training itself is a little bit seemingly more varied, but with barbell sports, you can really see that dose response concept in action. You can you do something, mm-hmm. you progress it, you you overload it, so to speak, and you can just kind of you literally see those changes happen, and they're quantifiable right in front mm-hmm. of your face. It's hard to quant- it was harder to quantify if like my performance on the football field, we would just mm-hmm. have to subjectively watch film. We'd try to, you know, gr- we grade we grade it how many plays did the coach think that I did my job and that was our objective grade for the for the game, but it's in barbell sport land, you can it's load on the bar. It's you, you know, these these things are a lot more easily measured, at least they're proxies for that. And so I think in rehab it's provided me with that lens that training lens that dose response lens i think a lot better than maybe the therapeutic exercise education that i received in physical therapy school but before that i I went to school as a strength conditioning coach so i kind of had that but competing in the sport has really really helped me to feel that because i can feel it in myself Mm -hmm. and like with you guys dealing with my own injuries I've been pretty lucky. Injuries have not really set me back in this sport. I have chronic stuff that that I manage, but I haven't had anything significant. And so I can actually manage these things in a way that it helps me. Like they're there just enough to for me to have to like address them and to experiment in my training and to kind of tinker around and and you know because these are things that I that I give to my uh, to my athletes as well. So. I, I just it's it's given me a, a really nice lens at which to look at exercise and doses and those types of things. Mm-hmm. I want to throw out a quick bonus question real quick since you mentioned that. Um, how do you communicate or set expectations in regards to training for some of this some of this chronic stuff or some of these uh, load injuries for lack of a better term? Um, because it, they are pretty common. So how do you set the stage for that and and talk your athletes through those moments? Yeah, it's they're they're the most common at least in in these types of sports it seems to be seems to be the case. It's definitely that's that's kind of the thing, right? It's uh why are these athletes coming to see us? They're coming to see us because their situation has become unmanageable for them. They feel it's not they're in. They're experiencing pain, but ultimately, there are plenty of athletes that experience pain that don't seek help. They're seeking help because they they feel that they they can't manage it themselves, or there's some fear there as to what it could turn into or what it means. 
And, and so they're looking for some guidance in that respect. One thing that I do, or I guess I should, I could say I don't do is I don't, we try not to frame our goals around the experience of pain, as in at this point in time, this many weeks, we're going to be pain free, something like that. Or mm-hmm. we're going to, we're going to quantify your pain now. And in this many weeks, it's going to be hopefully this quantif- quantified amount of pain. We're going to go from an eight to an, a four or something like that. The reason I don't do that is because a lot of these chronic issues, pain is, ex- is extremely nonlinear and unpredictable. And like depend- the training process. Like, like all of this stuff. But... You know, with these acute cases, I can understand the argument of if I sprain my ankle and it's the first ankle sprain I've ever had, I think we can be a little bit more accurate in predicting at least the the healing process, the literal, like the inflammatory process, these types of things. In, in six weeks, your ankle is probably not going to look like a, a black and blue grapefruit like it did the first week that you sprained your ankle. So those 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 basics of physiology. But when you start to get into things like tendinopathies or back pain that is not necessarily associated with an acute trauma. Now these these sensitivities, these sensitizations become a lot more nebulous and, and less predictable, the time course that is. So we try to frame first, so to answer your question, one of the first things we do is we try to frame our goals around function and, and performance and I ask them or I make sure that they are okay with the concept that they may be managing the pain experience. So our goals are based around their performance. We manage the pain experience. And I tell them what I will be able to help you with is for you to be more confident in doing the things that you want to do or devise a plan that will get you back on the the course of doing the things the way that you want to do the way that you want to do them, or at least as close to while we manage the pain experience. So the expectation is set right off, right up front, first day, that the ex- you experiencing the thing that you're coming in here for is going to be a part of this process. I can't guarantee that that's going to go away. What I can help with is filling your bucket, your, your envelope of function back up or give, trying to help you with give a, get a bigger envelope. Within that, we talk about, well, how do we measure success? Well, we could measure success in the same way that we would if the pain wasn't present. Just from performance perspective, we can quantify what you're doing in the gym. And we can also say, you know, with the experience of your pain, what if you're doing more? Ask them. Would you be okay with being able to do a lot more than you can do now, but with the same amount of pain? So it doesn't get worse, but you're doing better. You're doing more. You're doing more of the thing that you want. And they say, oh, yeah, that'd be awesome. A lot of, most of the time they say that. Um, and so we, we just try to grab something, some, some low-hanging fruit, and, and try to come to kind of an agreement of sorts just so that they have a more realistic expectation of, of what to expect because their pain could go away. It could just be gone one day, and that's just something that they don't experience anymore, at least that exact thing. Like, that's possible. But to try to promise that, I think, sets you up for failure. Because if it doesn't happen, then any improvement in function is not, is, is, 
not necessarily seen as a success because that's not what you were prioritizing in the beginning. Does that answer yeah, your you. question? Yeah, it, it does. Because it's a difficult thing to lead people through this. And I think, Jared, if you want to touch on this part a little bit, I think the difficulty that I have a lot of the times is to normalize the situation without invalidating the individual. Because these are they're, they're things that are going to happen. You know, it, it's, mm-hmm. it's almost impossible with the way that the pain experience works and with the, this type of training works to not run into something like this at some point in time, especially if you're getting stronger and getting better. It's just it's, it's going to be, unfortunately, part of the adaptation process that you're going to overreach at some point. You're going to overload mm-hmm. at some point to a point where this is probably going to happen. How do you normalize that situation? And not invalidate them. Because I agree with you, Quinn. You have to set set those realistic goals and have that conversation and get them to understand, hey, look, this is this is a process. It's going to be relatively unpredictable. Um, and, and that's that's great stuff. Jared, what do you think? Yeah, I struggle with the same thing. Um, in in finding that that balance between providing the validation, but also trying to reduce some of that threat and also to use it well, I think, to normalize it to a, to a certain extent. Um, one strategy that I find helpful some of the time, I don't think I do this all the time, I think it depends on my read of the person and how apprehensive they seem to be or how, how apprehensive they've told me that they are, um, is just drawing that, that distinction or rather letting them know that we, we find in the research that there's especially for these persistent things, there's there's a pretty poor correlation between how something feels or the pain they experience and the state of, of tissues um, and how if they have pain, it's not it's not a guarantee that they're wrecking themselves, that they're going to get worse, that they're going to cause themselves damage and that it's going to have negative ramifications on their performance of their career in the, the short and long term. Say so that again like, for the people in the back. Hurt <laughs> uh, doesn't equal harm. Uh, and it's going to happen if you do the sport long enough. Um, so some of these people respond well to that. You know, I think some people have a bit of relief knowing that if they have pain, they're not screwing up, which might be one of the first times or only times that they're hearing this, given how prevalent these messages of, hey, you should be pain-free, or you, if you're having pain, you're doing something wrong, are when it comes to general rehab. But also sports performance and training, especially when you look online. And that's, we've talked about this before, but I think we shoot ourselves in the foot in a pretty big way when these messages are as prevalent as they are, because then people have that expectation set um, explicitly or implicitly. And then when they come to see us, or if they come to see us, they they expect that if they're not pain-free, something is wrong. So then I think it's coming down to this conversation that you described, Quinn, where we're asking them about what's going on, obviously. We're asking them about what they care about what and what the difference is between where they are and where they want to be, because otherwise they probably wouldn't be seeing us. And then I try at the end of the subjective, I finish with four questions and I've ripped one from you, Quinn. Or I kind of, I guess I tack it in. It's, it's a second part of one of them. But I ask people what they think is going on if they have any gut feeling or intuition as to what the problem is. And as a follow-up, what they think we need to do to get things better. 
what I stay away from in the language that I use is I don't say to make the pain go away or to make you pain free. I don't promise that. Um, and that goes into the third question, which is by the end of rehab, what needs to happen or what do you need to be able to do to say that rehab was successful for you? And more often than not, people have told me about their, their functional or their performance goals. And so we, that comes up again. Um, a lot of times they're saying, I just want to move and not hurt, or I want to squat and not be painful or not, it, not have it be painful. And I say, okay, we'll certainly be, be driving at that. Um, would it be okay if, if we were able to have you perform the way you wanted to, and you had pain sometimes. So that's what I've stolen from you, Quinn. And a lot of times people say, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. Sometimes I get people who are just fixated on the pain and they, they just want to be pain-free. So even at this point, I don't promise them they're going to be pain-free because I can't. Or if I do, then I hope that natural history takes its course and they feel good by the time that they finish up with me and I look good. Um, Always look good. <laughs> oh, oh, stop. <laughs> uh, but uh, but if they're fixated on pain or if that's the only goal they have, then I then I say, okay, we'll certainly be trying to manage that. Um, pain can be tricky. And then I just try to set the expectation that it's it's not necessarily a linear process. I think things are going to get better, likely, because we will able to, to figure out how to get them, again, doing the things they care about. Um, but that it should be expected that we're probably going to have some days that suck and that that's okay. I mean, they suck, sure, but that doesn't mean that you've suddenly lost all the progress that you felt you were making or that you, you screwed up in any big way that that's could just be part of the process. You might've done everything right based on what we decide to do and you could still end up with that outcome. So then I think it gets into trying to equip them with the processes and the, the strategies to turn those shitty feeling days into wins. Um, and you know, how, how do you go into the gym and hope, you know, you thought it was gonna be a good day and then all your symptoms are, are more exacerbated than last day. Do you scrap the workout? Do you just go on with it as written or do you recognize that you have other options and maybe you just take a lateral step and you, you eke a little win out of what would have been a perceived loss, you know? And I think if we can do that, it, uh, the, that goes a long way. I don't, I don't think that every client always sees it that way, but I think most people do. Well, and that's an important thing to kind of wrap this up since I shoved it down the pain rabbit hole. <laughs> um, you know, we're talking about barbell sports in context here, but really when we talk about the, the pain experience, it's part of the lived experience. It's not just part of barbell sport. So I don't want it to come across as though we're kind of like, fear-mongering barbell sports and the pain is part of the process. Pain is, is going to be part of life. And it's a normal occurrence that most people are going to experience throughout their lifetime. So it's not something that's rare or something that should be um, ran away from or avoided at all costs. It's, it's part of the lived experience, which is important for us to communicate as much as we possibly can you know, probably the greatest example being something like uh, nonspecific low back pain or even just low back pain if you don't want to drop the nonspecific from it. Um, it's, just, it's just part of life. And, yeah. you know, correct me if I'm wrong there, but it's no, kind of how I picked pain. it up. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I also wanted to, before we get completely off the pain topic, we may not, but um, 
coming into this, we wanted to talk about how our own views and, and attitudes have changed, not only as clinicians and coaches, but also as lifters. I think way back when we were doing the Q&A series, we talked about, yeah, I think we got a question about pain from one of your guys, John, went down the rabbit hole again. And we're talking about methods that we use to communicate about pain with our own clients or with our coaches or just people in general. So one of the one of the changes that's come around for me as a, as an athlete, um, especially in the last year, is sort of coming to terms with the fact that with my own injury history, I'm I'm extremely likely to experience some hamstring pain. Uh, it's proximal on the left side. It's distal on my right side. I can manage that usually fairly well, um, but it comes up. My proximal hamstring stuff comes up if um, if I'm not using my quads well enough or if they're tired and, and low bar squatting. And it also kicks in usually the top third of deadlifts. That's just, if it's going to happen, it's probably going to be there. And then for my right side of distal hamstring stuff, it's usually off the floor, first few inches. So there are things that I'm working on to to address those, you know, directly loading those tissues in positions that they've been vulnerable in, but also trying to become more proficient with positions and just get stronger in ways that allow me to move in those movements that maybe don't stress those areas quite as much or just give me a little bit more buffer. But also a big part of it is just recognizing like that's going to happen and that's okay to a certain extent. But my coach and I now, instead of doing what we used to do, where I would tell him on a zero to 10 scale, this is where I was at today with this movement, just as a means to try to let him know what my experience was. Now we just have three categories. It's just if, if I can feel some symptoms, but they're manageable, it's green zone and I continue on. If I'm getting symptoms that I can't manage with things as they're written, then uh, I have half the volume, but try to keep the intensity if I can. Uh, if that doesn't go, then I scrap that exercise and move on. <clears throat> so that's really simplified the process. And it stopped me from having to think excessively about how I feel and how much pain I'm getting. And I'm not thinking every rep, well, I was, that was a four. That was a three. That was a four again. It's just finish the set. Okay, felt it. Manageable. Moving on. That's all there is. Um, and that helps me to to just ruminate on it less and just make practical decisions, be in the here and now, and just get through the sessions the best I can. <clears throat> and um, lastly, before I shut up, it was really cool having Andrew Patton on here talking about the study that he and Greg Knuckles ran. Um, not going to lie, I still feel pretty cool that I was part of, what, 12% of people who, who started off with some uh, modifications necessary but survived till the end. Um, I shared that with my coach after we talked with Andrew, and he thought that was pretty cool. But I think that just, um, not, not to put myself on a pedestal, I don't want that, but I think that's an example of taking a situation which requires modification and just doing that so that you can survive and keep going and make make progress. And it, maybe it's not the, the weight on the bar that's going up. Maybe it's not even the volume or you know technical proficiency that's going up. Maybe you're just becoming an adaptable person and learning about yourself in the in the process. Um, or maybe maybe you need a little breather for a week and maybe that helps you to have more family time. And then that helps things at home. So then you can come to the gym the next week and still make smart decisions, but you're, you know, there's some positive stuff that happens there. So yeah. 
You just got to update your priors, bro. Update them priors. Violate those expectations. Start that predictive cascade to the right the right joint in your squat. <laughs> Mike Amato is smiling somewhere. Somewhere. And he, and he knows Eating why. His <laughs> it does become a game of attrition, though, because, Jared, a lot of people in your situation wouldn't be able to manage it that well. Maybe they don't have that those those yeah. those tools at their disposal and or haven't been through the process enough or educated or helped in that type of thing and it's real easy to to take the all or nothing standpoint as in I can't train the way it's written on the paper the way that I want to so I'm just going to pull completely back and I'm going to take yeah. time completely off and not just a week you know months we've we've had athletes that take long long time away from training for one particular injury that they haven't actually felt in a long time because they haven't trained, but they're, yeah. they also don't, just don't know how to go back in. Or maybe they do jump back into something that they're not prepared for, have a recurrence, and it's that vicious cycle. So it is yeah. being able to course correct, but just subtly over time. And even if your body is not going to allow you to push to a point where you can make PRs or, or peak for a meet, so to speak, you can at mm -hmm. least maintain some level of fitness, keep it somewhat enjoyable, keep it as a part of your routine and a, as a part of your life. And when there does come a time where the the time is right, where your body kind of turns a corner and you're, you're able to then push it, well, you've at least maintained that baseline that you can jump off of. And I think that's huge. I think that's huge for people. And your description of what you have is similar to the thing that I've managed since my collegiate days for now 10 years is patellar tendinopathy in both knees. And I think that your, the way that you described your issue is mechanical. So you know the movement, that is the main trigger. Mm -hmm. It's the same area on either side. It's proximal left, it's distal right. For me, it's my tendons and it's when they're loaded, jumping, landing, squatting so we talk about this biopsychosocial model well don't sit you we can't sit here and say that we can describe the exact trigger movements the exact time they're load dependent and not have some type of biological factors be at play right 100 percent. in it but then you also made the point of I've learned how not to perseverate on those things as much and take them with me. And we have, that's now how we, that's that dynamic interplay of the, of the biopsychosocial model. So biology is still at play here, but it's how we interpret these things kind of over time. It's like, I've said this before on the show, I think. Have you ever seen a dog with three legs as happy as can be? Have you ever seen a dog? I've, I've had, two dogs in my life that have torn their ACLs and uh, we opted for not for no surgery um, and lo and behold after a few months the dogs limping around first of all but they're happy as can be like the affect doesn't change mm -hmm. it's just the signals are they're limping so there's biological signals there we're not asking them to quantify their pain but they're limping for a reason but they're not but they don't get sad about it and lo and behold after several months they stop limping and, you know, Mother Nature does their thing. But with, as humans, we have this meta capability to think about our thoughts and to think about our situations, just to hyperanalyze and these types of things. And I was hyper aware of my knees 
I didn't want to do anything. I didn't want to load them. Every time that I took a bad step and it made it hurt more, I was like, oh, crap, I just set myself back. I mean, I was in a whirlwind, yeah. uh, uh, just a cascade of those type of thoughts. And, you know, when I stopped playing football, my knees felt a lot better because I wasn't backpedaling for 400 no. yards every single day and, and cutting and uh, avoiding doing squats, but just doing all of the ballistic things in practice. Then I started mm -hmm. barbell training. And my knees felt fantastic. And so I was just changing up the dosage. But then I started to learn about pain. And that helped too because I stopped persevering on things so much. And so mm -hmm. it was, you know, you can't separate those things, but you also can't ignore either side. So I just thought those were really, uh, really good examples of how we could kind of tie in the, just the model of pain to these types of things where we can still acknowledge that biology plays a role. But it's kind of how yeah. the interpretation of the situation then, you know, as well. Yeah, and I think that's when people give or make caricatures of, of clinicians or just people who try to adhere to or or apply sort of modern understandings of, of pain and how it's it's not as as clear cut as the biomedical or pathoanatomical models would make it seem. The caricature is often oh you just tell them there's no bio or there's no biology at play, it's all in their head. And I I really get tired of hearing that because I don't think anyone's actually doing that. Um, just like you said, Quinn, we're not denying the, the involvement and importance of the biological stuff that's going on here. But that never happens in the absence of the person's thoughts and reactions to things. And you made the point earlier about how I'm in a unique position because I've got the experiences that I do and the resources at my disposal past experiences, other clinicians to talk to, stuff like that. Um, and I think that's one of the big reasons why for me, I make, or it's really important to try to equip people with, with these strategies um, and, and not even necessarily sort of upload everything that's in my head to them, but just let them know that, hey, there are things that you can do. And because the the road forward here is going to be pretty bumpy and winding. Let's let's give you some options. And if you have options, I'll use an example in a second, but if you have options, you usually feel better. So for me, I've got an eye thing. It means that my peripheral vision isn't great. My night vision or low light vision sucks. So if, if I go to a movie and the previews start going, theater's not all the way dark, right? That's dark enough for me to have trouble figuring out where my seat is and getting up there. So when the movie starts and it's pitch black, I'm, I'm staying in my seat because if I had to go to the bathroom, I'm just not going to be able to make it back. So, and I, I tell the story to patients sometimes when it seems relevant, because I think it's a little bit humorous, but usually if I go see a movie, I'll go to the bathroom first. I'll make it a point to not drink a ton of water or other fluids before I see the movie. Cause I know I'm going to be staying in my seat for at least a couple hours or whatever. And then almost without fail, even after going through that process of probably being a little dehydrated and going to the bathroom still and sitting down, then half an hour, I feel a little bit of urge to go to the bathroom. I know it's not bad, but I feel that urge. If I were to repeat that same process and be at home where I have the ability to pause the movie, go to the bathroom whenever I want and not have the, the social stigma of, of trying to make my way through other people, I could probably go for the full two hours and, and then some, probably a lot more. So I then bring it back to the people I'm working with and say, if, if 
you don't feel like you have options, there's a really good chance that you just feel worse. And we tend to find support for that in the research. But if you feel like you've got things that you can do about it, it may not completely alleviate the things that you're feeling, get rid of them. But you probably feel like you can do more about them and that that on its own probably puts us in a better position. People seem to respond to that when I do bring it up. That's great stuff. I wanted to read along those lines. I had put it up in front of me. It was actually one of my athletes today wrote me something along those exact same lines, and I wanted to share it. This is somebody with recurrent back issues and powerlifter, young young powerlifter, early 20s, and we were just kind of talking about auto-regulation and, and how things are uh, just take it day by day and don't have any expectations going into the, that particular training day. Just take what your body gives you and, and if it's a good day, cool. If it's not a, a great day, then you're still going to get some good training in and we give them options just like you said, Jared. Plan A, plan B, plan C, ways to modify. But he says, y- you're, you were right about saying each training day is a small adventure, but I am low-key again, young kid, but I am low-key starting to enjoy this adventure. Finding different ways to manage pain and discomfort is actually very enjoyable, as not being in pain is fun, lol. <laughs> but, 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 and he says, I am finding the whole process of experimentation very interesting and fulfilling. So there's still obviously some, you know, he, he prefers to not be in pain, so there's that, but he's also acknowledging He's not shying away from the uncertainty of it. He's actually finding some enjoyment in going in there and tinkering with things, and and he found it fulfilling. And I thought that was really, really interesting. And that was earlier today, and verbatim is what he said. And and to your point there, I just thought it was was fitting there. So there's an example of providing somebody with options. We're still kind of the tour guide, if need be, but we're mm-hmm. not we're not taking their head on the on this tour and saying, "Hey, look at that!" Turning their <laughs> head, you know, or, or picking them up and carrying them over to this thing and say, "Look at that!" No, we're saying, "Hey, this is this over there," and giving them some information. They're free to explore that avenue if they want to, and we'll show them something else if they're interested in that. But that is kind of how I'm looking at it, and um, just thought that was a cool example of, of what you were talking about. That well, is cool. it is, and and when you look at that. Yeah, we're the the tour guide, right? But that experimentation drastically increases their training skill. You know, mm-hmm. and in powerlifting, we've we've talked a bit about this at the course for both weightlifting and powerlifting. But you know, you can you can make injury an opportunity, and weightlifting has embraced variation uh, at least as far as I know for a long, 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 long time. Um, but powerlifters kind of wedge themselves into competition only type movement and in in the face of pain in the face of injury sometimes you're gonna have to modify to continue training and use variation and explore a little bit uh and that can increase your training skill and and give you options keep plan a plan b plan c and let's say i I have an anterior hip uh sensitivity that i've had for years ever since i tried to do small for the third time um, and it will creep up on days, especially high stress days. I can pretty much anticipate it. Uh, I just find a stance that works. Mm-hmm. Go wide, go narrow, go to a box, go to pins, good figure something out. 
Um, and it's made training enjoyable, but it's also made training continue to move forward. Um, and that's been, it's been really important, not just for my own development as an athlete, but for my athletes in, in increasing that, that skill. So it's cool well, stuff. John, I have a Spanish lesson in 20 minutes. Do you think you can get your story in within oh, that yeah. time? I was definitely going to ask about that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I can get the story in. Um, so I got into a point um, with my training partners that I was getting really cocky with my programming. And this was at a time – so now I'm, I'm not at all. Uh, now my firm belief is in complete flexibility that really everything is a day-to-day process and I cannot dictate – to the the tenth of a percentage what performance is going to be like. But I had given myself the illusion that I could. And the reason that happened is after it's 2019 now, after 2017 nationals, I took one of my lifters who qualified for the Arnold, the invitational portion of the Arnold against Ray and Kelly and Bryce and all the heavy hitters. And he sent me his goals. And I decided that I would reverse program from his goals. And he hit every one of those numbers to a T. He wanted an 803 squat. He wanted a 501 bench. And he wanted a 755 deadlift. And those were his third attempts. And he went nine for nine at the Arnold and took third by Wilkes. I thought I had it all figured out. (laughs) You were the man. I did. I I was like, yes. I (laughs) I made it. This is it. Um, and I'd used a, a brutal program to get in there. It was very difficult to recover from. It was one of those ones where you get a huge spike in performance and then it just, it takes a lot to, to come out of. And, uh, I really thought like, okay, I've got this. So I tried it. I tried to reverse program for everybody and it went miserable. Um, because it doesn't take into those things into account, you know, um, I planned 12 straight weeks for him and, N equals one is no better way to explain this. The kid was a tank. Uh, I'd never seen him break form. He was insanely efficient. He, I never saw him miss a squat rep. I never saw him deviate from his normal positioning. So literally my goal with that program was I'm going to see if I can get him to budge. Okay. And it, it, it still never happened. Like he survived that program and went on to have a huge PR total and do great. And then after that, with everybody else who wasn't as efficient and wasn't that kind of athlete and didn't have all those tools and low stress and all these other things, it just didn't work for us. Um, and then, <laughs> then it didn't work for him. Oh. You know, yeah, it, it's not reproducible. Mm. Uh, and that's, man, I fell flat on my face. I was like, what is going on? I don't understand. It was a really frustrating time. And it was one of those moments where you get like, you wonder if like, can I do this? Am I like, did I trip and fall into success or did, did, did I, did I really do anything? Mm-hmm. And you, that was the, the meta moment for me. It was like, well, maybe this is wrong. And that's when you just dive into the hole and try to figure everything out. Um, well, not figure everything out, realize how much you don't know. Mm-hmm. And they're still trying to figure out. Uh, but that, that was a huge learning moment for me because it led to 
you know, where I am now and, and all, all the things that I try to do to, to, to be better every, every week, which is pouring over research, reaching out to other people, reaching out to my athletes. Um, Nick Bronkle is a friend of mine on Facebook and he put a post on today that said the best feedback that you can get is from your own athletes. Mm-hmm. And I firmly agree with them. Um, the feedback I've been able to get from them has been priceless over the last few years. Uh, and that's been a guiding light in regards to the changes that I've made, what they like, what they don't like, how they're responding. And just adding that and, and really trying to increase my coach athlete relationship with everybody has paid off with huge dividends because we talked about it with Kylie. It's something that, uh, for some reason has really stuck with me, but his big thing was as a coach, you need to be consistent. Yeah. Your response needs to be consistent and they have to rely on that response to be consistent and getting that feedback from them and really plugging into how they feel, what, what's going on with them, how their training is going has allowed me to develop that. Um, and it's been completely invaluable as opposed to looking at them like a robot mm-hmm. that I can just input in, get output, Yes, look what I just did. Um, it's so much more complex than that. There's so many things that we still haven't figured out, like fatigue uh, that, that still throws a wrench in stuff every now and then. And then to just listen to them, listen to them more, uh, yeah. really really take it in and use that to, to develop the next few days, not even like six weeks from now, just sure. the next few days and, and, and go in that route. Uh, and it's, it's made at least my entire practice much more fluid, uh, because we look at rehab and performance on such a spectrum at this point that it's easier to kind of float between them as opposed to making it this big dichotomy. I love a long-ended way. Of that <laughs> I love what you, what you said. I love all of it. Um, but going back to our episode with Kylie, he also talked about how he, he's, I don't know if he second guesses himself. Well, no, he does. He second guesses whether he's as plugged in as he feels or thinks he is. And he makes it a point to check that. And and I have also made it a point over the last few months, at the very least, to be more cognizant of the fact that I have the ability to ask very candidly uh, my athlete, hey, how do you think we're doing? What do you think we're doing well? Do you think we're heading in the right direction? Is there anything that, that we're missing? Is there anything that I'm not doing that, that I should be doing or anything that I am doing that you'd rather me not? Um, there have been some times recently where I've looked at an athlete's program and looked at the recent performance and I've thought, how do I want to, what do I want to do next? Where do I want to take them and what decisions do I want to make? And then I just realized, why don't I ask them to, I'll still think about things on my own and give my own input, but the, the athlete is the foremost expert in how they feel. And, and I want to get that feedback. And, uh, and I've been really grateful to get positive feedback from my athletes that they, they appreciate. They very much appreciate the, the effort put into just hearing them out, um, maintaining that coach-athlete relationship, and how that helps them to have more confidence and they're going through tougher times or performances and what they want it to be. Um, and you know, it, maybe it's someone to help celebrate with them when they do something really friggin' awesome. Um, and I, just as a matter of course, I, I don't 
allow myself to take a ton of credit when it comes to my athlete's success or my client's success. I mean, I'm, I'm part of the process, sure. Uh, at the end of the day, I'm advising them what, what I want them to do and you know, giving them something, but they still have to do it. And the, the successes don't come unless they do the thing or do the things. Um, so I will, uh, it's not an effort to have any false humility. I will reflect and, and look at and see what I'm doing well. But, um, but yeah, when, when things go really right, uh, I'm pleased with that, but I, I just, I like the athlete or the client to be in the spotlight and that's just their moment there. hundred percent agreed. Asking the athlete what they think is something that I do a whole lot more of now than I used to. And especially for, I've got a lot who are not competitive, but they still, they train like a bar, like a powerlifter, they train like a weightlifter, but they're just not competing or they never have, or they just, they're not in the, it's not in the works right now. I've got, I've got several, several of those. And for them, especially we're kind of running, we run with a, a block for a, a while because if they're having success it's kind of like an emerging strategies kind of thing but we'll run with it as long as they have success and we'll tweak things here and there but we don't we won't necessarily change a whole lot but i'll be i'll frequently ask them you know i know most things are going well right now but has anything run its course do you feel like you're you're not getting as much out of anything in the program right now and i i ask that on a on a pretty on a pretty f- frequent basis and a lot of times, well, f- number one, it just keeps them involved and it lets them know that I'm still kind of checking up, even though things are running smoothly and we're just kind of like, we ain't fixing it if it's not broke and we're not doing a whole lot right now. You're just putting in the work. I don't want them to think that I'm just stagnant and it's still not paying attention. So I think it at least lets them know that I'm keeping my pulse on things. It involves them so they, they feel like they have some say, but they do have say. And, and a lot of times they'll give me great feedback like, you know, well, I'm... I feel like maybe I'm hitting a plateau on this exercise here. It's it's been a while, or I'm just not enjoying it as much. Like I take that seriously. If it's you know something arbitrary, like uh, they they're tired of doing RDLs on Friday, then cool. Like we'll switch that up because you you like those, <laughs> but that was like two months ago, and you probably are getting tired of doing those now. So yeah, we can definitely find another variation. But so it was just going to your point, Jared, of, of involving them more. And I think that that just lends itself to a more successful training process anyway, if they're invested in it. Obviously they are physically, but, but also mentally and emotionally, if they feel like they have, like it's part, the, their program is theirs. If they feel like that, uh, just seems to be a little bit more of a successful adventure. It's true. I had a girl this week. Uh, I had, pivoted away from a particular bench variation and we hadn't gone to a full one rep on it. And as, as soon as I updated it, she sent me a message. She's like, you know, I was mentally ready to really try to take a single at that. You know, this past past two weeks have been a dip, but I, I was, I was, I was dialed in and I was like, let's go. Then. You know, mm-hmm. like you, if you build that trust and you build that relationship and you give them, you know, with programming and that sort of thing, it, you're you're the guide. You're the guide. You're you're kind of the, for lack of a better word, really the captain of the ship. But they they have to have some sort of say and some sort of input and feedback and be involved for it to really work. Um, and that that's a very very important role because they're the one doing the training. 
They're the one working on it. Yeah. Sweating. Sweat equity. Non-temperature controlled gyms. (laughs) And it's that much more important or or as important in rehab when you've got the, the, the much less predictable factor of pain thrown into the mix as well, which can be scary, which that in itself can can take some self-efficacy away from somebody, yep. you know, just, just that whole piece. So uh, the clinician coach slash or clinician slash coach athlete complex adaptive system. <laughs> it's awful. That is. What do you guys think? I like it. You have Spanish lesson, huh? There yeah. are a few. Yeah. You do that yeah. remotely. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yep. I, I talk com. You can get oh, huh. uh, native speakers from all over the world. And there it's pretty go. cool. You just got to. That's cool. It's like anything just else. Just code Quinn. Yeah, no, I wish. <laughs> um, but it's like learning a language has been interesting. We can equate that to training. You immerse yourself in the thing to learn. But in, mm-hmm. in like the sport, it's easy. You do the sport. We're immersing ourselves. You're not learning how to be a powerlifter from a textbook. You're doing it. You learn. You the, you then you do it, and then you come out of that, and you read about it, and you learn. But then you apply. You're mm-hmm. constantly immersed in the thing. But that's what I found about learning language. I've been trying to learn Spanish for two years, but I've been trying to learn from a grammar workbook or like online courses. But actually having lessons from with native speakers and then going and actually speaking with like different groups in the area, I've learned more in the last three months than I have in the last two years. Duh. But yeah. it's hard. But it's hard. It's like you're uncomfortable. You're a lot more uncomfortable doing yeah. that. It's like in training, like to really push thresholds and and to adapt and to progress, you got to be pretty uncomfortable most of the time. Hmm. What do you What do you think? constitutes that that discomfort learning language is the potential for screwing up and looking stupid yeah well it's like hard you're it's exhausting words are hard and think about an hour every sentence is effortful yeah you know and it's like you after an hour of just mental uh juggling in your mind it's 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 crazy exhausting and so yeah. it's, it is that, and it's in a group settings, it's, it is like kind of messing up and knowing like you're, you're not able to communicate and everybody else is able to communicate a little bit better than that. There's that, but you learn so much faster in those situations than staying in your comfort zone. And you can, it's just, just like anything else. You got a minute for like a two minute story. Yeah. You got one minute for yeah, a two yeah, minute. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> I like that. Uh, yeah. Wow. Um, my brother went to Virginia Tech and had the opportunity as a junior to take a senior uh, study abroad in Brazil. Uh, the problem was is that all the, the university in Rio was not going to make a language accommodation. So he literally got to Rio and knew zero Portuguese, none. Um, he was there for six months. He came out completely fluent. Mm-hmm. Just it, when you immerse yourself in the same thing you're talking about, not just that. It was a matter of survival at that yeah. point. And uh, to kind of bring it around to the, to the conversation at hand here for the entire thing, what saved him was a weightlifting gym. He went there and found a rusty Alico bar that was probably 30 years old. Uh, 
paid a membership and started snatching and a couple people came over and started talking to him in Portuguese and he's like, I have no idea what you're saying. And they helped him through the whole process. And uh, weightlifting is is one of the things that got him through that. So that's pretty, that's pretty awesome. cool. Well, we'll wrap it up there. I think it's a good, good place to end. Well, for I foresee us doing more barbell shows in the in the foreseeable future. There's a lot to unpack here. I think there's a lot that we could talk about. Mm-hmm. And, it's just scratching the surface. Oh yeah. And speaking of, like we said, we've got our barbell search coming up. If you have a facility or if you know of a, a facility that would like to host either the weightlifting or powerlifting certification, then email events at clinicalathlete.com. We'd love to start filling up our 2020 schedule now. And if you are interested in coaching by one of these two handsome gentlemen, Jared and John, or me, you can go to <laughs> clinicalathlete.com as well and click on the online coaching tab. But John and Jared, thanks a lot. This was fun. Yeah, man. We, uh, well, we didn't talk about it on the air, but it's been a bit since we recorded one of these and this was fun. I'm excited to get back on the mic. Absolutely. Maybe some more Q&A shows in the future too. We got some case study stuff we want to do yeah, too, correct? Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. I got I got one or two I'd really like to to talk about. So cool. Looking forward to it. All right. All right, fellas. Thanks, guys. We'll talk soon. Thanks, everyone.